0: Welcome to the Academy Securities Geopolitical and Macro Strategy Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Robinson, and I'm joined by Rachel Washburn, Major General James Spider Marks, and Peter Chur. We're going to do something a little bit different with our podcast today. As everyone goes into or comes out of Labor Day weekend, we look towards the remainder of the year and kind of focus our sights on long term goals, long term concerns. So what we've done with our geopolitical podcast today is identified the key risks and concerns for 2018 as we see them on the geopolitical landscape. So we're going to run through several topics. We're going to talk about China and trade war. We're going to talk about North Korea's nuclear capability and negotiations. We're going to talk about Russia cyber threats and influence in our political elections. We're also gonna talk about the United States military presence in Afghanistan, the Middle East, Africa, as well as the continuing financial crisis in turkey so we have a lot to cover as i said we're going to jump right into it rachel please lead us off
1: general marks uh, as we're the summer is coming to a close i want to highlight a couple of the subjects that we've covered um, on our podcast before uh, i'd love an update on where you see chinese military expansion and peter where you think the trade war is headed
2: uh rachel thanks very much um yeah, I think in advance of moving into our, you know, our fall period and clearly toward the end of the of the year, there are several things that I think we should look for in terms of Chinese military expansion in particular. First of all, as we've mentioned before, Chinese navy has been growing quite considerably and they've reached a level of competence and capability that we've not seen before. I think some of the things we should be looking for will be additional intelligence that our intelligence community will generate in terms of the militarization of the islands um, in the South China Sea that China really has been building up and making available for further expansion over the horizon, as they say, in terms of Navy capabilities. I think also we should start to see the Chinese begin to expand beyond the South China Sea and be a little bit more adventurous, and we might be able to see them more aggressively conduct operations um, through the Straits of Malacca and into the Indian Ocean. It would be quite provocative if they did this uh, at a higher volume, but it wouldn't be uh, surprising. I think we should anticipate this. And also the United States and the other nations that have participated routinely in these naval exercises in the South China Sea, um, we should expect the United States and the other participants to invite China to participate again. If you'll recall, we excluded China from the current exercises that had been ongoing, and it wouldn't surprise me if the United States reached out to bring China back on board. Again, this has everything to do with building trust and finding ways where the United States and other partners can cooperate with China.
1: Peter, how do you see this same issue?
2: Thanks, Rachel. I think the trade war is going to be very
3: interesting. It sounds like we are on the verge of getting a deal with NAFTA. So Mexico and Canada have been coming to the table. I think that will actually put a lot of pressure on China to come up with a deal. There's signs of the economy slowing down. So regardless of what is going on militarily or even with North Korea, which I know we're going to talk about next, I think China is going to be brought to the table, wants to do a deal. I continue to stick to my view that there is a likelihood of some sort of a deal announced ahead of the midterm elections, though I do think it's really going to involve China agreeing to buy things they were already going to buy from us, like liquid natural gas, and it's not going to do enough to prevent... The intellectual property theft that we would like and it's not going to truly open markets in a reciprocal way so i think the markets can be a little bit disappointed but i do think we are headed towards a trade deal on the back of what looks like one with nafta
1: all right sir north korea it was the big story all last year we've covered it a lot and since the summit it seems like it's kind of taken a a backseat on the headlines but as a firm we've consistently said tensions are still as high as they've ever been and most recently we've seen that Potentially, the diplomatic efforts have taken a few steps back. Sir, where do you see the North Korea problem today?
2: You know, our, um, our on-again, off-again relationship with North Korea, frankly, is a good thing to have because forever it's been an off relationship with North Korea. So there's goodness in the fact that we're having some level of dialogue. Um, we heard just yesterday that the Secretary of Defense, Jim Mattis, has indicated that the United States will not back down from military exercises on the Korean Peninsula and in the region, other than those major exercises where we've suspended them for the time being. So I think conditionally based, um, the United States will at some point resume the talks. You know, the president has just... um, had not suggested, but told Secretary of State Pompeo not to go to North Korea. So that visit was suspended. But I think we're going to see Secretary of State picking back up in terms of direct engagement with North Korea. We're going to see the military in South Korea and in the region continue to exercise and maintain readiness. I mean, that's why we have a military is to ensure that we we can exercise, maintain a high level of readiness and ensure that we can protect our national interests. I am still concerned that we have not made discernible progress with North Korea in terms of the very specific requirements that were voiced, not codified in a contract or an agreement, but were voiced in Singapore that denuclearization was the aspirational goal and that efforts would take place to move in that direction. As we've said denuclearization on the peninsula is probably never going to take place. But to reduce the level of tension, we have to be able to freeze production. We have to be able to freeze the number of missiles they have in place. We have to be able to have a dialogue so we can move with some cadence in the direction toward decreasing tensions. But the fact that we're talking is a very good
3: thing. Spider, I think that's great, and I think markets have behaved actually quite rationally on this. The markets did not get overly excited when that um, deal was announced after the summit, and the market hasn't reacted too negatively either, as now there seem to be some hiccups. So I think the market actually understands what you've been saying, that this is going to be a process, and it's going to take time, and there's going to be steps back and forth. Um, But we, I think, are putting the right pressure on and moving the right direction.
1: General Marks, as we enter September, another anniversary looms. Uh, We are nearing 17 years of the war in Afghanistan. Recently, we've heard talks about potential privatization. Sir, what do you see for the future of the conflict in Afghanistan?
2: Well, thanks for the question, Rachel. You know, it's humbling and it's a tad shocking to realize that 17 years we've been in a conflict in Afghanistan. It's reached a level where it's, it's fair to say that we are in a continual state of conflict, albeit the numbers will not be huge, but we will continue to deploy young men and women into harm's way to try to stabilize, stabilize a very, very troubling part of the world. Um, I think what's going to happen, certainly the level of privatization in terms of our engagement, our military engagement, is always an option, but it's not the option of first choice. The United States will maintain a military presence. It will fluctuate between what we've seen in the recent past, what we have today in the range between five to 10,000. We reserve certainly the right to increase that or to decrease it. But I think there's a minimum amount of presence that we have to have in place to ensure that the Afghan military and law enforcement capacity has reached a level um, where they can be self-sustained and there's a level of professionalism that gives the United States and regional partners, and the partners that have sacrificed so greatly in in this part of the world, the confidence that we can decrease our physical presence and have the confidence that our ability to continue to engage, hopefully in terms of some economic growth, and certainly a minimal level of security can be in place. Um, So really, the summary is the U.S. military presence really has no horizon We will continue to see military presence there. Certainly privatization could increase. And one of the key elements in all of this is what does our relationship with Pakistan look like and how can we continue to apply appropriate pressure because Pakistan has a very strong voice in terms of how things turn out in Afghanistan.
1: Sir, staying in that part of the world, uh, U.S.-Turkey relations continue to evolve What's your update and where do you see the next three to six months as far as uh, our relationship with Turkey?
2: Well, it's a very troubling relationship that we have with Turkey um, and it's, it's really unfortunate. Um, Turkey has been one of the early partners in NATO, It joined NATO in 1952, but I think we've reached the point where, you know, we, we've discussed whether Turkey will decide to leave NATO, but really the question could be, will NATO decide to leave Turkey? Um, The relationship is so troubling, primarily um, the way that Erdogan has saddled up next to Russia, has in fact begun a process of buying military equipment from Russia, um, and also has experienced such economic turmoil with the collapse of Valera is now looking toward partners like Germany, which may be a, a good thing to try to financially um, provide some stability and support. So the concern I have is, has the United States now lost influence with what has been a very strong partner of the United States? Certainly a relationship that has had its scar tissue, but one like all relationships will have bumps, but it makes us stronger when we emerge from these bumps and these challenges. This will continue to be something that we need to be deeply engaged in. And we can't allow our relationship with Turkey to atrophy much beyond where it is right now. But we still are at a crossroads. Is Turkey going to remain in NATO? Will it depart NATO? Or will NATO ask Turkey to depart? It'd be interesting to see.
1: Peter, what's your update on Turkey?
2: Yeah, I think for now, we have to
3: continue to avoid Turkey in terms of investment. I think We see the lira back under pressure. There's no clear sign that the resolution is coming politically. And until that happens, I think it's going to be hard to get anything other than momentary bounces. The rest of the emerging market seems to be okay and de- you know moving away from getting dragged down by Turkey. But I think we have to watch that, and I would continue to avoid Turkey as a investment, and a would wa- and I would continue to watch the Turkish lira as a signal for bigger problems that could have a kind of domino type effect where it starts reaching out to other similarly you know weak countries with a lot of external debt.
1: When we discuss Turkey, Russia is obviously a major part of that uh, conversation. Um, and Russia is pretty destabilizing in many different uh, facets of the world. But as we head into fall and we're looking at the midterm elections, we have to consider their cyber influence. Uh, General Marx, what do you see uh, the U.S. response looking like for that?
2: Well, I, th- I think the, th- the thing that Russia has declared by action is that they're going to be involved in our ele- elections in any way that they can. They've done that for decades. It's just that over the course of the last, I'd say, decade, There has been a new tool in their kit bag that allows them to provide influence and exert influence, and that's called cyber activity. So Russian involvement in our elections is not new at all. It's just that they now have perfected, I think, an ability to uh, present challenges for the electorate. We have not seen Russia actually physically alter vote counts, but you certainly can alter the influences that go into the decisions about for whom to vote. So it's fair to say that Russia's engagement is happening. It's also fair to say the United States is responding and, in in fact, taking actions that we just don't see that will try to eliminate or at least mitigate that level of Russian engagement in our elections. What this really tells me is that now is the time for us to move forward in some cooperative way. And figure out how we want to try to govern cyber, which remains the sole ungoverned common. And it's the one domain of war where we have no regulations and we have no rules. It can be done. We could do that through, as we've described many times before, it could be done by way of the G7, which does not include Russia or China, to achieve some level of agreement. And then take some of that agreement to the G20, which does include those two countries to now move forward and at least begin the dialogue. Cyber as an ungoverned common is existential, and it could cause such massive challenges that we haven't experienced yet. So it's absolutely imperative that we get our arms around it and we begin now.
1: Peter, what do you see as the economic impact of Russia's cyber crime and cyber activity?
3: Thanks, Rachel. I think cyber is One of the things that's on the forefront of investors' minds right now, it's something they are trying to address. We're well aware of the problem. You know, there are estimates that are as much as $2 trillion in terms of the costs of cyber hacks and ransomware. At the same time, companies are trying to protect against this. It is very costly to protect oneself against it. Investors aren't necessarily rewarding companies for that effort. So I think there's going to be a dialogue. I think people are going to try and figure this out. The longer we can go without a cyber event, Probably the better though to some extent, maybe it is a cyber event that forces investors to really pay attention who is doing what and forces companies. It's when you when we are out there with clients, it's amazing how much people want to talk about cyber, and yet how little really is being done in terms of a long term goal. And we keep running into the one issue comes up over and over. We are largely dealing with nation states that are acting against us. And yet we as a nation really are more about companies. And so we can't necessarily fight on the same terms that we, you know, our enemies are. So it's an interesting, fascinating subject that I think is going to keep coming up. And the market doesn't have a good answer for.
1: All right, General Marks, we've obviously seen a lot of instability in South America, and Venezuela is clearly having a significant impact on its neighbors. The U.S. hasn't had a, a particularly powerful response. How do you see the impact of Venezuela and the problem set in general?
2: Well, clearly, I view Venezuela through the, through the filter of um, the elements of power. And the one element of power that we routinely do not talk about is the element of power called patience. And I think the United States has taken a wait-and-see type of, uh, of a view toward Venezuela. Certainly, diplomacy and um, our incredible economic posture and our military and certainly the use of, of information to influence activities are those elements that we routinely see nations employ. But in this case, the United States has chosen to wait out um, and as a result of that, again, we see a potential atrophy of U.S. influence, especially in this hemisphere. And that, that concerns me. Uh, Venezuela is a failed state. It sits on some of the world's largest oil and gas reserves. The rules and regulations surrounding exploitation of that are so onerous. Um, we, see, we see a lot of that simply languishing and not being available. And also India has recently stepped in to establish itself with some degree of influence. Um, They are, they, India, are now an immediate winner in this regard, but they have to be cautious. You know, if the entire ship of Venezuela, the Venezuelan ship of state collapses, then India would be certainly damaged as a result of that. So I think Venezuela may collapse of its own weight. And if we do, that becomes a much bigger problem than we're currently seeing. That's what concerns me most.
1: And Peter, how do you see the impact of their failing economy on the global markets?
3: I think right now it's twofold. One, this is just another example of other nations stepping up and reducing the U.S. influence. Again, the U.S. maybe could have stepped in and the, taken the role that India took on. So I think longer term, we've got to figure out what that means in the near term. It just adds to what we're already seeing in this destabilization in Turkey. You've got Venezuela, you've got Argentina. There are other countries that periodically we see some concerns about their currency, so whether it's Indonesia. So I think on a standalone basis, it's not that important to the global economy. I think the signaling effect of that the US is letting other countries step up is a negative signaling over the long run. And then the fact that this is just yet another country in a series of countries that possibly You know, took advantage of ten years of global quantitative easing, and now is having some troubles. Is something we're going to have to deal with, and that is a potential domino effect. And that is why markets kind of react, not just to this country specifically, but these similar countries.
1: And sir, to close out uh, this last question is is pretty broad, but I think is is telling about U.S. influence abroad. What do you see uh, the future of U.S. military presence in the Middle East and Africa looking like, and where should we be focused?
2: Um, Ra- Rachel, that's a great question. Um, let me start with the second part first. Our presence in Africa really has been uh, circumstantial. Um, it is a, an area that we must pay close attention, but we've not necessarily always Uh, committed a large amount of resources in order to try to solve some emerging problems. That may change over time, as we've seen in the recent past. So in in many cases, our involvement in Africa will stay below the headlines. But it is a competitive landscape that really will be an intergenerational problem for us. Um, And and I can't imagine there being a horizon to our engagement. It will be very specific. It will be very limited. It will be very precise and it'll be very targeted in terms of some very narrow, specific goals. But as we've stated all along, you know, a good percentage of Africa uh, simply lives in the dark. And as long as we have dark and light places in the world, those that live in the dark will have ideologies that won't necessarily comport with what we're trying to achieve in open, lighted democracies and portions of the world. So we have to pay attention to it. We either bring Light to the dark or those in the dark are going to find their way to the light in, it, not ne- in not necessarily ways that we would embrace. The second part about the Middle East clearly is the thing that concerns us all and should concern us all is Iran. Um, it is a burgeoning nuclear power with designs that are antithetical to what our interests are in the region. And as a result of that global challenge of destabilization, is the concern that I have about Iran. So again, U.S. vigilance across all elements of power is necessary in the Middle East with a very strong focus. Iraq has a new government. Our presence in Syria remains. We have a very strong partner in Israel. We've got to continue to maintain relationships with Jordan. We have a a touch and go relationship with Saudi Arabia. It is important that we remain and play a very strong influential role in that part of the world to bolster our presence relative to Iran. That's our that's my biggest concern.
1: Peter, and your thoughts?
2: I
3: continue to look at this as somewhat positive for the US energy industry. And one of my themes for you know the entire year, an ongoing theme, is that we are gonna do more and more to make domestic energy production our policy because it's good for the economy and it's good from a defense standpoint, and it eliminates a lot of our need on these pressure points that come from outside of the world. Again, when we keep going through this and it's been like this for decades if you look at where geopolitical risk is and you overlay a map where oil production is the, there's a lot of overlap in that so i think this is you know bodes well for the us Energy industry, I think we're going to continue to grow. I think we're going to be, grow our main, um, our exporting of energy. I think liquid natural gas will be a big part of that, especially if I'm right about the trade war. So although I think it's a little bit disruptive, I think all it does is consolidate the political willpower here to truly you know, build up our domestic energy production above and beyond where it already is
1: peter general marks as always thank you so much for your valuable insights
3: yes thank you everyone for
0: that rachel and major general spider marks will be back in just a moment but i want to take a little bit of time and ask peter you know we've discussed several topics here but are there any market concerns or things that you're seeing that we haven't
3: touched on yet today that you'd like to share with the audience coming into september one thing i wanted to talk about is our positive outlook on investment grade debt there's been a lot of negativity about the amount of investment-grade debt, about the amount of triple B debt outstanding. We think that's overstated. We write about that, which you can find on our website the, under Macro Strategies. The title is Don't Be Afraid of the Big Bad Triple B Bond. Away from that, we see several tailwinds coming into the fall. First and foremost is the impact of the tax cuts on individuals and on corporate earnings. I think that's been underestimated, so that provides a positive tailwind. We are looking for a deal with NAFTA on the trade side. We think that will lead to a deal with China. As we discussed earlier in this podcast, it won't be the be all and end all in terms of deals, but it will be positive momentum for the market. What we're looking at as a possible headwind is the emerging markets. We've already discussed about Turkey and some of the other ones. Away from that, and probably more importantly to me, is Italy. Italy remains a concern. You're seeing Italian bond spreads widen. Italy wants to change the EU. They want more flexibility to run deficits. Given what we've seen in Greece, I don't think austerity works. So I actually understand what Italy is looking to do, but that could be disruptive for markets. So that to me is the most obvious headwind facing us right now. Thank you so much for that, Peter. And I'm going to turn it back over to Rachel now.
1: General Marks, this week our nation faced a pretty significant loss with the passing of Senator McCain uh, coming into a a holiday weekend, I think it's appropriate that we, we take a moment and uh, acknowledge and honor his service to our country. And I know you had a few words you'd like to share.
2: Rachel, thanks very much. Yeah, it was a um, clearly a sad day for America. Um, but I'd like to share some thoughts, some observations about um, my relationship with Senator Kane, which I was honored to have. So maybe there's some symmetry in losing Senator John McCain right before Labor Day, a uniquely American holiday observing the greatness of those who built this amazing nation. Americans of all stripes over several centuries labored and prayed, struggled and fought, pushed and pulled, stumbled and recovered, and embraced all manner of chaos. As a result, we created a home where everyone has a shot, where God is available to all, where the dignity and rights of each of us are inviolate, unalienable, and ours. As a result, and above all else, this experiment called America is where the individual can can carve his or her path. Senator John McCain was the embodiment of great American individuality. Now, by birth, this was a man preordained to serve our nation as a naval officer, the son of an admiral, who was the son of an admiral. McCain often observed that he felt trapped by birth. He, too, would serve. It's as if he had no choice. What's so incredibly American about John McCain is that he embraced that inevitability in his own way. He followed the set path but did it in his own way. John McCain challenged convention. He was a true contrarian who relished in pointing out and ripping apart hypocrisy, pettiness, injustice, and stupidity. Many of his battles were foolhardy, and by his own admission, he should have walked away. But McCain loved a good fight. He lived by the words of President Teddy Roosevelt, who shared with us, it's not the critic who counts, Senator John McCain was our generation's Teddy Roosevelt. Now, I knew John McCain, and I was blessed to serve with him at various times in my career. My relationship with him was purely professional, but I did get a peek into his personal ebullience, irascibility, irreverence, and shining brilliance, but most importantly, his deep humility. Any man who has lived five and a half years in a box— with periodic departures from that box to have his limbs broken, remains at his core a humble, thankful man. More than others, he felt that life is a gift. John McCain showed me how to embrace life, to sprint and jump at every chance despite my doubts. He showed by example that you must create the outcome, never let the outcome create you. Now, I first met Senator McCain a month after 9-11, As a general officer in the United States Army, I was required to travel to Capitol Hill and meet with key congressional leaders. We were a nation going to war. Senator John McCain was obviously one of those leaders who would help us navigate those troubled, choppy waters. I was ushered into his office that was decorated with tributes to the multiple broad influences in his life. The Navy, the Senate, the great state of Arizona, "'and his amazing family. "'My salute, a faux pas for this soldier, "'since the Navy does not render salute indoors, "'was followed by an almost angry, "'What the hell are you up to, General?' "'Now, not expecting that greeting "'and feeling a tad harmed, "'I responded with an equally brusque, "'Sir, I'm obviously an interruption to your day. "'I did an about-face and departed. "'I offered no other words. "'I did not wait for any guidance,' and I left confident that I'd never see John McCain again. A gasping officer from McCain's office came running down the hall and asked me if I'd come back and meet with the senator. Obviously, I did. My meeting with Senator McCain could not have been more professionally informative and personally engaged in. It began a 17-year relationship that I will cherish forever. Now, I'll be a tad melancholy this week, as this great embodiment of the American spirit is honored in our capital city and travels to his final rest in Annapolis to join his friends and fellow warriors who fought the good fight. John McCain, no doubt, already enjoys some considerable influence with the Almighty. And I'm confident that the next time I see John McCain, he'll ask me again, what the hell I'm up to? But I don't think this time I'll do an about-face.